This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The dangers of AI are very real. From self-generated essays and adversarial attacks on self-driving cars to closed-loop algorithms where companies don't want you to know how their systems work, Alberto Todeschini from Berkeley shares the truths behind much of today's AI research. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products, and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast. Today I have with us from Berkeley and the iSchool in California, Alberto Todeschini. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. We were just chatting before we started the episode that uh, both of us travel a lot. I recently got back from uh, Monterey, Mexico, doing a lot of innovation in the data science industry. I know you've had a lot of opportunity to work in data science and AI and you're doing a lot of cool things right now. What's new in uh, your world right now? Uh, thank you. So I just come back from over a year, mostly in Asia, between Hong Kong and Singapore. And it's been very, very interesting to see different approaches to data science and AI and different products. And then coming back to you know, the outskirts of Silicon Valley. So that's been very fascinating. And um, the cultural differences and cultural attitudes about privacy and concerns that are, you know, exist in some 
locations, but not so much in others. So it's been really fascinating, and I think it's been quite enriching. Now, privacy, if we, if we go into that topic, that's a, a fun one to talk about because I know in the United States, privacy is quite different than it is in Europe, than it is in Asia, or at least that's how it seems. What was your experience seeing privacy in both Hong Kong and Singapore? Well, I also happen to be a, a European, so I you know, have a foot in Europe, one in the US and one in Asia. And yeah, it's just very interesting. So it's a bit like the difference in attitudes to freedom of speech in Europe and in the US, where freedom of speech is protected a lot more in the US, whereas in Europe, for historical reasons, actually cultural heritage of, of you know, World War II and propaganda, we value freedom of speech, I'm tempted to say less, but let's say differently. And similarly, uh, it's something similar with privacy. So I see a lot of cultural differences, and I see a lot of us failing to understand what is fine for someone else may not be fine for us, and uh, and contrary-wise. So I see a lot of people judging with our, and I say, well, your average U.S. expectations about privacy, judging how privacy is understood and taken care of in some Asian countries, for instance, right? But we are using the wrong metrics. We are looking at our standards and judge with our standards, right? And you travel and you talk to people and sometimes they say, well, sure, with these AI algorithms, you'll learn ever more about us. You can learn about psychological makeups of people. You know what their mood is and things like that. But they say, hey, you know, we live, uh, for instance, in Hong Kong or a place like this. They, say, they may say, well, we live in a very crowded place and we need to make sure that it's nice and orderly and, uh, and it's perfectly fine if certain data is checked by the government or whatnot, because it's uh, a net positive, right? So it's been enlightening. And I would suggest anyone who wants to take privacy seriously on a global level, really to talk to people from around the world and actually understand them, understand that the standards may be different, understand that, say, population density, economic growth and other factors are very important. So listen, read and listen. That's so interesting, right? Because, you know, here as someone who's originally born in Florida and I've lived in New York for much of my adult life, you know, I, I see a, a certain way of being and a certain attitude that Americans have to culture uh, and to uh, driving business decisions. But you mentioned very valid points that could be so different to those who are Singapore nationals, right? Those who are Hong Kong nationals, or are they from Shenzhen working in Hong Kong and vice versa? So there's so much diversity there. And I think that diversity is fascinating because when we talk, technically speaking, about translating results for business, and you know, here we are in 2019, where we're seeing that AI has taken the world by storm, and especially in business, it's but everyone's trying to see how do you merge this into your business model, into products. And I think one of the challenges about AI being merged into business is the interpretability, right? We're now seeing companies are attempting to interpret, they're attempting to better understand results, especially if you don't have full uh, time data scientists on your team. But what's your take on interpretability for companies? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. I've just interviewed 10 very senior executives for an executive education program building with Berkeley and we're launching late June. And the interpretability came up multiple times. 
Well, you know, so technically speaking, it's just difficult. As you know, it's just difficult. Some of the algorithms are just difficult to get them to output anything that we can interpret. It's especially important um, in finance and in healthcare, certainly, and also with uh, autonomous vehicles. Okay, so finance and healthcare, it's pretty obvious, right? So if, uh, for instance, you are, you know, you work for a hedge fund and you go to investors and you say, hey, I need 400 million US dollars that I want to invest. So, well, that's great. So how does your algorithm works? And if you can't explain that, if you can't interpret and explain that to your investors that, uh, you know, you may have kind of a hard time, right? Find someone who signs those checks. Similarly in healthcare, if you're, you know, diagnosing things, but also eventually if you're choosing, right, there's a, in healthcare, there are a lot of constraints given by costs, right? So a hospital can only spend so much on the patients. And if, you know, increasingly from simple diagnostics to actually say optimizing how you run a whole hospital, right, including expenses, this is literally a matter of life and death, right? Someone will get more treatment, someone else will get less treatment because of costs. So naturally, interpretability and explainability in contexts like this are very desirable. Same with autonomous driving, right? So there have been a few cases of of, uh, Teslas slamming into a similar type of uh, concrete structures or fire trucks. I don't remember exactly. I think both of them. Well, guess what? If it's... uh, Again, it's a matter of life and death. It would be nice to know what happened. Can you interpret? Can you explain that? What is the failure, right? In other domains, I hear requests for interpretability a lot less. So I think one of the interesting things, so as I said, for some of the algorithms, it's just very, very difficult to get them to output anything that can be reasonably interpreted. And as you mentioned, sure, uh, you know, it's also a matter of, of time and budget, right? Can you interpret it? Sure, give me someone with an appropriate PhD and six months and a budget, and I'll interpret whatever you want versus, you know, can you just look at it for a couple of hours? So there's a matter of costs. And another trade-off is, so if interpretability really is important and you you need that interpretability to be instantaneous or pretty quick, right, not doing a post-mortem of six months on some neural network, right? then you may have to trade off some performance. So, you know, your your top performant algorithm, maybe it's less interpretable than another one. So you may choose the second one in terms of uh, whatever metrics you're tracking, accuracy or whatnot. You may choose something that works a little less well, but it is a lot easier to interpret. Now, you've had the opportunity to see a lot of projects, I'm sure, both from these different executives and organizations globally, in addition to students who you've worked with at University of California, Berkeley. Myself, I'm also an educator. I teach a lot more in the boot camp space, but we also do capstones. So capstones are quite essential. And I know you mentioned these different uh, industries like finance, healthcare, autonomous driving vehicles. If someone wanted to get involved in data science or AI today, they wanted to do a capstone in these industries, would you have any recommendations on this is a great project to get started or here's some best practices to get your foot in the door? Sure. I think the, in terms of best practices, assuming, you know, assuming there's a certain technical proficiency that doesn't have to be 
extraordinary. Now, all of us need to develop novel self-driving technologies, right? So assuming there's some level of proficiency and curiosity, I think that an attitude that works is similar to what we are taught with regards to startups. So basically, the idea is this lean methodology that get used by a lot of startups. Remember, I'm around the corner from Silicon Valley. So everyone, half the population of uh, that you see working in cafes are CEOs of, of startups, right? So what does that mean? One thing is, I always tell my students, you must have the domain knowledge, right? Oh, you are working with, we had a fall detection system just being built, for, for instance. What do I mean? There's a bunch of hardware that you can um, carry around your neck, for instance, if you're, you know, the elderly, for instance. And if you fall, you press the red button, right? Uh, emergency services are called. Well, it turns out that it's a very imperfect solution that often is not used. What if you've lost consciousness? What if you're in the shower or in the bathroom where a lot of accidents happen? So there are better solutions. How about we just put a microphone and an accelerometer on a table, it looks like one of those Google or Amazon uh, packs, right? Alexa and that stuff. With the accelerometer plus the sound, we can train an algorithm to figure out if someone falls, right? But clearly, right, clearly, you must understand the problem very well if you want to do something like this. So what we did with the students was we talked to gerontologists. It turns out there are whole conferences, people who spend their entire careers figuring out falls. Why? Because it's the number one cause of injury for the elderly. So this is what I tell my students is you need to get out of your basement or loft or wherever you are. You need to talk to domain specialists because there are, there are no shortcuts. You know, sometimes we, we work with a project with marine biologists to identify certain uh, malign seaweeds. And again, there's no shortcut, right? So my students have very minimal knowledge of seaweeds of these toxic seaweeds, and we talked to some marine biologists who've been studying them for 30 years, right? So absolutely, you need to understand your users, you need to understand your stakeholders, which entails a lot of emailing and a lot of meetings. I know some of us, we just want to write a nice code, right? But you have to get out of the building, at least figuratively, and talk to experts. Otherwise, it's difficult to solve real problem. Experts and users who may or may not be the same people. So I think that's a general rule for building AI products. It's like, do people actually have the problem you're trying to solve? Yes, no. Who are the experts in this area? What can you learn from them? Now, because AI is magic as of 2019, right? A lot of people are very happy and delighted to work with us. We'll, we'll see when, when the magic wears off. But for now, everyone wants to work with us. And this is so fascinating about interpretability, right? You're talking about business case and, you know, if students are working on projects for case competitions at business school or hackathons in industry, often you're getting out there and you're beginning to talk to insiders and you're beginning to talk to stakeholders to understand more about projects and what is possible to have solutions. But I think what is super interesting is not all problems are able to be solved in real time. And you know, one big problem that we can revisit from your previous remarks is with Tesla, and not necessarily isolated to Tesla, but more with self-driving technology, 
is the challenges of the cars running into roadblocks in the highways, into fire trucks, and even into stickers on stop signs. There was actually a hack earlier in 2019 where some researchers, just to test it, you know, put some QR code stickers on certain different yield signs, and the Tesla vehicle got confused and just stopped or didn't move or, or something of that nature. And these are beginning to become more common. And I know you've done some work in this space. You've talked about it with some companies and in your lectures. A lot of uh, these attacks, I think, are going to become more common. And I'd love to learn more about them and have our audience hear about that. Sure. It's a really fascinating topic. It's really beautiful. The math is beautiful. The techniques are beautiful. And I'm absolutely certain it's going to bite us. So I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever it's going to bite us. So, so these adversarial attacks, adversarial machine learning, adversarial examples. Okay, so we've been we've been doing it for a few decades, right? It's nothing new, except that it's really exploded recently. There's a two or three streams of publications. One, uh, a few papers out of Berkeley, a few papers out of uh, Google with uh, Ian Goodfellow. Uh, it's a very well known. AI researcher and uh, a few other papers out of MIT and uh, obviously other places, but these are the three three most important sources of the, the recent techniques. So how does it work? So it's very simple. Let's say that I built an app that recognizes fruit. So I can go out and uh, find the wild uh, blueberries and wild raspberries and whatnot. And this app tells me if the fruit that I'm taking a, a photo of is edible or not, right? We don't want to eat the wrong berries out in the forest. It's as simple as that. So we can figure out some weaknesses in these classification systems, and we can attack them. And there are different types of attacks. One is untargeted, meaning I just want this classifier to misfire. I don't care how. So if I see wild blueberries, it may instead return... It could be anything. It could be bananas. It could be rocks. It could be uh, whatever, depending on how we are training it. But in any case, I just wanted to misclassify that generally, untargeted. Then there are targeted attacks that are probably more vicious, potentially. You mentioned one, right? So it's as simple as a stop sign being read specifically as speed sign or bumps ahead sign or whatever. So this is targeted, right? So I want or right turn being read as a left turn. It's kind of a lot more scary than the untargeted. So one of the problems here is that, as you said, there have been attacks that are one single pixel attacks. So literally, so imagine you have these cameras on your car, on your drone, on your phone, and literally just changing one pixel, it's enough to make a classifier misbehave. Right, and the, the ones that you mentioned, so how does it work? I put a sticker on a stop sign, and the sticker looks innocent enough. It could be the name of a hip-hop band or something like that, right? So humans are not going to be thinking, oh, that sticker is trying to make me uh, slam into a wall, right? It just looks like a piece of advertising or something like that. But it's crafted, it's optimized to push. Basically, it pushes the decision boundary of this classifier and it pushes the data across this decision boundary so that you go from one class to another class. And we're not going to get too technical, but so that's the point. Then there's another type of attacks that are also very interested, and they are a type of parasitic computer. So we can figure out basically how to use computer resources. That was also very fascinating. So I can 
I can use a company, say a company as a service that I upload pictures and they tell me what's in the pictures, something like that. And there's a bunch of stuff that's doing this. And these parasitic attacks, I can reprogram the entire classification situation to do some computation for me. So maybe this is probably less practical, but it's still very interesting how it's done and very interesting. Now, it all sounds very exotic, right? It all sounds like very far-fetched. And then who cares if instead of blueberries, you tell me that it's a raspberry, right? Well, I think the most worrying thing, one of the most worrying things is that we are moving into a world with hundreds of millions, billions of gadgets that do machine learning, that do this classification or whatever there on the gadget. And as you know, security practices for gadgets, once they're sold, tend to be like very shoddy, right? Or maybe the company went past, but it's still working, right? So you end up with possibly tens of millions of identical gadgets with some machine learning capabilities, right? In houses, in hospitals, on army bases or wherever. And I can buy the stuff and I have years to figure out how to attack them. I'm not in a rush, right? The 99% of these companies are not going to be as sophisticated as Tesla or Google and Android, right? So there you go. Suddenly you have this huge amount of pieces of, uh, you know, cheaper pieces of technology out there that are, that have years to learn how to exploit. And these techniques are, are evolving very rapidly. So I'm pretty sure that there's um, a mismatch between the so-called white uh, hackers and, you know, white hat and black hat and that the, the black hats are probably you know, they could be further ahead, right? So they could be working on this as we speak, certainly, I have no doubt. So we just need to pay attention. I think it's absolutely obvious it will be a problem. It may be a big problem, and we may eventually, perhaps soon, find, you know, it could be, it could cost all of lives. You know what I mean? This is not just about trying to scam a bank out of uh, money or things like that. It could be, you know, one of those nasty pranks or whatever, but it could very conceivably result in death. And do you think there's a way that we can protect against them? The reason I ask that is, to me, the most common way is, oh, maybe we'll have a new startup in the future, the new Symantec of the future that will have its own API or SDK that will just be behind the scenes constantly monitoring. I'm wondering if that's the reality we're going to start living with as AI starts living on the edge, on all devices, and in this IoT space of you know, every device has a sensor and soon we're going to have thousands of sensors in every home. Yes, I think so. I think so. And it, it's not just because of these adversarial attacks. It's also because we're very, very quickly moving into a um, world where we are not going to be able to tell truth from fiction. It's as simple as that. So there's a family of techniques that go under the name generative adversarial networks and you know from about 2014 and they were very interesting from the beginning but they were the performance was kind of a, a party trick at the beginning and then they started working and then they started working even better and better and better and now they work awfully well for certain applications like uh, generation of say new faces so this is problematic because we can we can use them now to copy and paste someone's appearance onto someone else's body in a video. There was a paper from 2018 from Berkeley, I was a 17, called Everybody Dance Now, for instance. So it's literally, you can copy and paste my appearance on someone else. It makes it look like I'm executing those things. And they were 
in the, you know, when they build this, they were training on, on dance videos and hip hop and things like that. Very innocuous, right? You can get a politician or, you know, CEO of some company. You could put videos out that are much more compromising and just uh, showing, you know, your average uh, president dancing hip hop, right? And there was another study, I don't remember where it was published, where they were showing these images. And um, even though they were not perfect, the perception, so the only one reply from the people that they showed them to wasn't their false. It was, they're strange, they're funny, right? They were already good enough that most people would think, well, yeah, they must be true, but it's kind of funny, right? It's, it's something not, not that is smooth, right? Same techniques can also be used to clone people's voice so that I'm phoning you and I sound like your mother, and, uh, you know, or vice versa, and I'm asking uh, bank details, or it can sound like your significant other, your brother, your sister, and you're not going to be able to tell without aid from technology whether it's me or this hacker speaking. So you're absolutely right. There will be startups in the space. We had a, we had a project called, uh, you know, to find this, some of these images, deep fakes. So we had a project that was doing exactly that. And even over our semester, it was moving so quickly, that it was very, very difficult to keep up because every few weeks there was a new technique. So is it going to be on servers such that Google never serves these fake images? Is it going to be on your phone? Is it going to be on your laptop? We'll have to see. It will need to be updated continuously because this stuff is moving so fast, right? Cat and mouse, but they're both moving you know, at light speed. That's right. You know, we we have other examples of this. You know, it's, I think, back to the early 2000s. There was jib-jab, and we would send greeting cards, and it would be very funny because you would know it's not really you, but you in a cartoon. And even Disney had done that with their parks. But then now a great case of that deep fake from October 2018, you know, the actor Jordan Peele, um, he was in a BuzzFeed video basically spoofing Obama, right? The former president of the United States and, you know, took the audio and the lips and the voice and made certain words that Obama would never say. And it, it was quite comical, but it was also quite scary because you imagine if that was done with a current sitting president or leader and so forth, what that could cause issues. And there needs to be a way to authenticate and securize all these protocols. So I think that's going to be a big challenge. And and I wonder almost if GANs should have never been released to the world. It's interesting. So it's, do we, we're building them. We're building these techniques. So the argument often, even from open AI, yes, that large and, and well-funded nonprofit with uh, funds from Elon Musk and Sam Altman and some others, right? So as you know, a few months ago, they built this natural language processing model with which you could create essentially infinite new text. Infinite new text that sounds pretty good, actually good enough to pass for text written by humans. And uh, early, OpenAI didn't release the full model, meaning they released this sort of a smaller model that wasn't working as well, but the, the full model. So there was a concern that what, what do we do now that we can cheaply create infinite text and we can spam Twitter, which is half bots anyway, we can spam Facebook or anything with infinite new text, right? So meaning you don't need to hire 200 people in some location to write up fake news. No, you can generate infinite new text, right? To confuse people and everything. So 
again, we are just not going to be able to trust our unaided human senses with anything that comes to us digitally. Not the audio, not the video, not the stills, not the movies, and not text either. So what are we going to do? You know, if you spot this after the fact, how useful is it? So if there's a video that goes viral, right, with uh, some important um, ramification in, in politics or in, uh, you know, for the finance of a country or whatnot, but politics especially, right? Okay, so the video goes out, you know, 10 million people see it, the impression is made, and then someone at some obscure or semi-obscure or even famous university says, oh, by the way, we discovered that it's fake. Well, the damage is done, right? So what, what, what are we going to do? And I have no answer here. It's just a, a thought, something I want to, you know, our audience to think of. What, what are we going to do? You know, as I'm pondering this right now, I think some sort of live authentication technique would be needed, almost like how you have multi-factor authentication for when you're signing into cloud environments and technology. It would be that you start a Skype session or a FaceTime session, and then you instantly verify your fingerprint or something that then live then you both receive like a trusted badge to know that this is a non-deep fake call, a non-deep fake video you're in a secure environment. Yeah, I think so. We'll see what the mechanism is going to be like, but I think so. So for now, some of these uh, techniques have um, the statistical analysis is very easy to spot for a computer. The computer will immediately tell you, yes, it's a fake in many, in many cases, but not so for humans, right? So already humans will be confused or thoroughly and completely sold on the truth of something. For us, for the computer, for many of these attacks, the statistics of these fakes are such that we can spot them easily, but it's not going to last very long, right? So this is the usual arms race, and it's happening so quickly that it's difficult to keep track of what's uh, happening. And that's just the stuff that is happening now in the open. You know, they're very well-funded, you know, AI, you know, private, yes, but also there are well-funded uh, parts of the world that have already allegedly engaged in trying to modify uh, the outcomes of elections, right, in the United States and also with Brexit. And um, news from this week that the same was happening with uh, elections in South Africa, right? So these people, have the, they have the hackers, they have the budgets, they have the determination. And um, you know, what are we going to do again? Well, the best we can do is to, I think, understand and learn what's available there. And the more that we're educated, the better we can hopefully recognize or help others recognize what's going on with these different sources of data. And I think one underlying theme that you've been sharing, Alberto, is that with these uh, generative adversarial networks is the data is not just video, it's not just photo, it's not just audio, it's all of that and more. In fact, it's multimodals, right? We have this term um, that you've also done research with and that is multimodality. It's actually quite cool when it's used for good and wanted to hear some things that you've discovered with it. Yeah, so this is one of the most interesting things. It's a little, maybe it's easier for insiders to understand why I'm so excited about it. But let's see if we can make it clear so that everyone can appreciate So. For a lot of these machine learning and AI systems that we've built in the last decades, they work on a single modality, a single type of data. For instance, we've been doing so-called sentiment analysis for decades. 
there's a piece of news, there's a customer feedback or whatnot, and my algorithm tells me this person was happy or not. This is the most basic way to do this. Now we can do more sophisticated things. We, we can do it along different aspects. For instance, you own a chain of hotels, or perhaps you're an airline, and you want to know from written feedback, yes, from text, you want to know what do people feel about the catering on the flight, the cleanliness, promptness, helpfulness, right? So there, there are different aspects, right? Okay, but this is still only one modality. This is all from text. But there was a paper, I think, from Korea last year. They were using people's voice as well as, so the, the voice, the actual sound of the voice, as well as the content of the utterance, what was said. And together, they could do the sentiment analysis much better than individually. So think about it. So if I, I could type something and it sounds like I'm kind of irritated, However, I'm just, uh, maybe it's a joke, maybe it's a, an attempt at irony that often, in my case, especially it falls flat, right? Maybe it's dry humor and you don't know. How many misunderstood emails and text, pieces of text out there? However, if you're also hearing me, yes, and even more so if you're seeing me, you may be able to tell, oh yeah, he's smiling, it's a joke. So this multimodality allows us it's increasingly allowing us to feed different types of data into a single system such that the whole overall system works better, right? So I can feed images. So you look at the shape of my eyes. You look if I'm smiling or not. The sound, so you know, is, you know, sometimes you can hear the voice sounds a little angry. It sounds a little anxious. It sounds or happier and relaxed, as well as the actual content, the, the transcript of what I'm saying, right? So this is very, very cool. Another example is in uh, medical imaging. So think about the different images that you see in a hospital. There's the X-ray, yes. There's a MRI. There's a Doppler machine and others, right? So they're completely different. And each one requires specialization to read properly. But it's also very difficult for a computer to figure out how to reconstruct some parts of a shape or functionality of the brain from completely different images, even though it's exactly the same brain, right? So with this multimodality, we're getting better and better at being able to figure out, extract similar information from these different types of images, such that the final result is better quality than that was possible previously. So it's um, so for working data scientists, for working specialists, it's going to be a lot easier to feed different modalities of text into of, uh, sorry, of data into our algorithms. And for users, we'll just get richer products and richer experiences. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, you know, even with all our families, if we're talking about healthcare, we've all been around hospitals and different offices. And just in the past couple of years, I've noticed it's quite cool for the ones that I visited. There is a lot of automation technology, but there is also now information such as the doctor's instantly able to see what happened on my last visit or certain analytics that, um, oh, the blood pressure is 20% higher or lower than it was before, solving these calculations for the physicians um, without them having to manually do that. And um, whether it's one piece of data or multiple pieces of data, this multimodality that you're explaining 
it sounds that it's creating augmented human intelligence. It's creating an experience where the data science and this machine-driven learning is able to augment user experience and then ultimately, hopefully, create better solutions for society. Certainly, I think it's an obvious step, an unavoidable step uh, in... in, um... Will be many instances of these augmented human capabilities. It's, it's a bit like building an exoskeleton, right? Some kind of uh, this mechanical skeleton around you that gives you extra strength, such that you can go to high mountains or, or carry wounded uh, soldiers, right? Similarly, we'll have our cognitive abilities augmented. I don't think we can foresee for which kind of tasks the augmented uh, human plus algorithm will be better and for how long. So for instance, if I play chess, and to begin with, I become a better chess player because I'm learning with a computer. But what if the computer is still better than the human plus the computer, right? We're just lowering down the computer. So similarly for AI in corporations and so forth, we talk about uh, augmenting the workforce a lot. And that certainly happened. It will continue to happen. But eventually it may just be that humans are kind of a, of a, a drag, Right? Sounds awful, but uh, uh, we will see where that goes. We'll see where, I think one of the most fascinating things actually in this I mean, that I'm asked pretty regularly is about creativity, right? So with these algorithms, we can increase creativity. For instance, we can, you can get better brushes, so to speak. You can get, some of my students built uh, deep lyrics. It was a project that brought lyrics, basically. And it was already better you know, sometimes it misfired spectacularly and hilariously, but some of the lyrics were actually pretty good, certainly better than I would write them, right? So you can seed the generation of lyrics with the theme that you want, and you can change them and polish them. So that's the augmented creativity. But it's also interesting that, you know, being people such as called creative adversarial networks and others, well, the final output shown to humans appeared as creative as that as things created by humans right and that's the final the final proof of whether there's creativity is does it look creative to humans and i find it very interesting that creativity seems like one of the most intimately human qualities and one of the things that maybe computers should may not be able to do right hang on a second a computer can be genuinely artistic and creative and paint and, and write lyrics you know, and I read the paper, it's like, wow, that was a clever math trick. But does it really matter? If the human finds the painting nice, or the lyrics nice, or the music nice, and creative, and moving, and you get that experience, you get that experience as when you see good art, when you hear a good song, does it matter where it comes from? So we'll see if creativity is the last thing to go, or to be augmented, and we'll see, you know, how long after that, if that's a V you know, version 1, 1.1 or 2.0, the computer will be more creative than us, right? Well, only time will tell. And with this whole topic that we've covered on today's show for adversarial networks, it seems there can be a lot of positive and a lot of to be aware of, right? And I think that we're going to strike the right balance. There will be combination of startups and regulations and new inventions coming out, hopefully all for the better, hopefully with more uh, laughs than, uh, you know, negative emotions there. And this is a super exciting time, I think, to be alive and actually see all the implementation 
of um, the AI that's been trained for so many years now. So thanks so much for sharing all your insights, Alberto. Really appreciate it here for being on The Humane Show. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next one. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.